Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Larissa Whitaker. I took a quiz to find out which of the uh, classes I was. And it told me that I was a monk. And then I Googled like shorthand for how people imagine the different classes. And it said something about how monks are wise and buff. (laughs) And I was like, ah. (laughs) You're buff. You're buff mentally and emotionally. (laughs) I don't don't know about that. I was like, you work out a lot and you, mm, mm mm-mm. Well, and it's that's a very like basic reading of the character archetypes, though. What class are you, Ben? As far as D and D class, I I keep I, going back to wizard class, Caleb. <laughs> oh my goodness, which <laughs> requires, I would say, a multi class combination between wizard and bard to be good at that. Do your students listen to our podcast? I have no idea. I, I have. I am aware of some like younger siblings of friends who have queued up uh, an episode every now and again. I think uh, Aiden, if you're listening to this, appreciate it. Uh, Shout out Aiden. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's just, no, that's wizard has always been the one I've most closely identified with because it was the first class I played. You're very wizardly. You have, you have basically a like closet full of wizard tricks, AKA board games. (laughs) That's fair. Are we talking like Harry Potter wizards, Dungeons well, and Dragons? Well, D&D wizard because ah. like that's where, especially with the way it works in 5e, which ironically I haven't I haven't actually played a 5th edition wizard. and But it is one of those I'm going to out-prepare you classes. I'm going to have everything ready that I need for any answer for any scenario that might come up. You did not want and, that. No, 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 no. My brain works like that normally. Oh. It's like let's create contingency plans for our contingency plans. I feel very much at home in playing a wizard and you i i match you in the w i feel like i'm a warlock mm-hmm. class uh which again sort of similar to you okay the... what is what is this class what's a class a class in D D is essentially the level up function the additional abilities that you accrue throughout the game happen through your class whatever species your character is you pick at the beginning and there's usually not abilities that relate to levels though sometimes they do and then your background's going to give you some things at the beginning, but mainly stay stagnant. As you go from level one to level two to level three and so on, that matters with your class because you will continue to unlock re- abilities related to that. Right, and it sort of like defines the role you play in your party. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Do you deal just a bunch of damage? Can you tank a lot of damage? Can you like deal with social situations? Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. So when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons, for those of you who don't know, when you first start a campaign or a game of Dungeons and Dragons that is ongoing, you get to design your own character and you choose lots of different things about them, including their class. And if I'm understanding from Ben and Caleb's explanations thus far, the class is is like what we have discussed previously with the five-man band setup, right? <laughs> yes. You want a little bit of everything in your D&D campaign if possible, right? Yeah, yeah. it's like your archetypes, basically. Mm. Very much um, so.
I say this because I'm planning to run a game for family and in getting a wizard in the party, a cleric in the party, a, a ranger, a bard, and then looking at it and going, we need a frontliner. <laughs> so we have a fifth player. I hope that they are going to be the person on the front line taking most of the hits. And Ooh. thankfully, our fifth player is playing a fighter. So oh, we're covered. So we're covered. Uh, is that the least favorite person in the in the group? Actually, is I think the it, fighter, the person. How do you determine who that is? Is that a personal grudge that w- determines? No, 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 no. In it? this case, it was the most experienced player at the table when I explained, "Hey, we've got a lot of spellcasters and no frontliner. Are you game to make one of these frontliner class characters?" Paladin, and he, fighter, barbarian. Yep, and he was game. So, oh, nice. Yeah. He was out there ready to take the charge, lead the party through whatever challenges faced them. To mm. get hit a lot. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Running the game that we've been playing in, which I feel I can reference because we've been able to tell some of those stories on the campaign diaries, it's been interesting to kind of watch the evolution. Again, with a mostly martial focus and less spellcasters because you're playing a barbarian. Jacob. Me, Larissa yes. is playing yeah. a barbarian. Mine is named Gorg, who is different from Grog. And for the record, I didn't know Grog was a thing or a character before I invented Gorg. I'm just on that same excellent wavelength. And also overlap. Great minds think alike. Yes. Thank you. And then you overlapped with their barbarian for campaign two, Ashley's character, Yasha, because she is also an Azamar. The conversation that we're going to have tonight, as you could probably already guess, has a strong D&D focus. In that there's so many stories that you can tell that really dig deep into the internal struggles that characters experience. And we've seen that reflected back to us in our media in wonderful fashion, really in the last year with a couple of episodes that we rewatched recently as we were preparing for this episode. Of both Vox Machina and Stranger Things. Yes, indeed. And with focuses on Percy DeRolo and Max Mayfield, respectfully, as they both are grappling with not just internal struggles, but also villains who manifest themselves kind of grafted onto their mind or to their soul, uh, as we see play out in those stories. And just the way that those stories kind of run parallel to one another and the fact that we are, all of us, uh, active in playing D&D, there's a lot of potentially fun rabbit holes to go down here depending on where we want to go next i am enjoying just the organic conversational flow of all things D because it's been a joy getting to play with both of you at a table for an extended period of time i would agree i feel like i've learned so much from playing dungeons and dragons to more deeply appreciate stranger things um i'm sure it's no secret that stranger things may have a wider audience than vox machina even though both are beautiful projects. My entryway into knowing anything about Dungeons and Dragons was probably watching Stranger Things. And so then to develop a knowledge of the game through playing it and then go back and obsessively rewatch the show after season four dropped, I feel like I was able to appreciate it in so many new ways. Yeah, absolutely. When you sent us a video that kind of talked about how it's always fun to do what we were just doing instead of compare a class to your own person, compare a class to some of the different characters because they even have the ones that they play as within the context of the game. Obviously, Mike is the DM, Dustin's the bard, Will the wise, and so on. Uh, But then you can also see like, oh, Steve is the fighter. Hopper has barbarian elements to him in certain (laughs) ways, in just all sorts of ways that you can see the D&D reflected into the story in 
characters across the board and elements all over the place, uh, especially obviously with uh, so many of the villains coming from the upside down being villains you can find in your monster manual or other campaign settings. Well, that's probably, you know, the biggest, Oh goodness, this will be spoilers, I suppose, for some people because the show hasn't gotten to it yet. Well, in that case, spoiler alert for Stranger Things and Alleged of Vox Machina before you listen any further. Yes, because Vecna, you know, is the the mm. villain in Stranger Things. He's spooky. He's, he's made up of worms. <laughs> he's very spooky. Vox Machina, which is based off of Critical Role's, you know, home game that they played, the final like baddie that they face in that campaign is also Vecna. Is he also made up of like those nasty upside down wriggly? It's going to be very interesting to see what that so. character looks like in animation for a couple mm-hmm. of reasons. The first being, I think originally he was probably fairly close to the Vecna of D and D lore, and yes. with everything that's been going on with D and D rights issues and the open gaming license and one D and D and everything that's coming down the pike in the world of Dungeons and Dragons in the near future here. In the first, I believe they alluded to him, if I have this correct, they alluded to him at the end of the first season of the show when they referenced the Whispered One. I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be Vecna. Yes. Oh, they did a pretty good job of recreating Vecna for Stranger Things. That's a spooky looking guy. Caleb just showed Mm -hmm. me a photo from the fandom wiki. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in the last- His face looks like it's melted off. The last episode of- Season one of Vox Machina that we watched when there's mm-hmm. that like floating orb thing. Yeah. And then the skele- like the creepy floating skeleton man showed up and then disappeared for a second. Oh man. That was Vecna. Ooh. Yeah. And so it'd be interesting to see like what his final design looks like, what they call him, because again, all of that right stuff starts to get a little funny because with the way some of that works, and again, this is a rabbit hole I don't want to spend a ton of time in, but there are certain things that you most certainly can use when you're basing a story off of the world of D&D, and there are specific character names or concepts especially that you wouldn't be able to use, like a character like Xanathar, the the Beholder, or Morden Kanan, or some of like the named You'd characters. You'd have to use like... Mike Wazowski instead. <laughs> For Mike those Wazowski, who, who the are Beholder. unfamiliar, the Beholder is... It looks like a scary Mike Wazowski. It looks like <laughs> Celia and Mike Wazowski actually had a child. Oh, good. You're right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, and I can't take credit for that. I D- that that's D and D memes all over the place. Yeah, it's like, oh, it, it's a floating giant eyeball with kind of snake ass tentacles. It's like, yep, that's those two characters <laughs> rolled into one. Uh, I would like to say which of the classes I think I am. Yeah, go after for it. some personal introspection, I think I'd like to think myself a druid. But I'm probably a paladin. I don't know what paladins are. I read a couple different descriptions, and I was like, I don't know what that one is, and I'm still confused, but it sounds, no offense to the paladins out there, slightly boring. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You have a a couple animal companions, so I could see you being a druid. I have a cat and two birds. (laughs) It's a tense living environment. So you started with that test from Monk. You're a barbarian in the campaign that I am running, and then we landed on Druid or Ranger, possibly Paladin. I do want to go to bat for Steven a little bit because I think we usually come back to with him. I don't bar- think Steven is boring at all. No, He's no, no. thrilling. Yeah. Well, no, but well, I don't know. And I, think I don't just... know how much he has to work with starting out. That's just how exciting he well, is. And I think we <laughs> determined that he was barred with a few levels of Paladin mixed in. In real life? Yes. Mm. What is a Paladin? A Paladin is like a Crusader. They are a holy knight. Oh, they're, is that why Mike Wheeler imagines himself a paladin? Yeah. They're like a knight dedicated, you know, to a specific god. But they're also still a charisma caster. 
So same uh, as your bard, same as your sorcerer uh, in that regard. Then I stick with druid. I could see you as a druid. Mm-hmm. Thank you. A druid is a planty, uh, earthy type person, correct? Like they're aligned with yes. the elements in some sort of spiritual yeah. way. I have a Kinda tattoo w- of moons and a moth and you flowers yeah. and stars. That's yeah. it so far. The circle of the moon druid or ranger route makes a lot of sense. Ever since The Legend of Vox Machina came out last year with season one, and given that I have spent now most of the last two years consuming more and more critical role content, and I think you're still way ahead of me, I say you looking at Caleb. Yes, I have like nine episodes left in campaign two at this point, which is still, you know, pretty far behind. And I myself was confused about what either thing was up until the day we prepared for this podcast recording, though I had been told many times. So for folks like myself, what is critical role in Vox Machina? So uh, in five words or less challenge. (laughs) Fastest growing media company globally. That's impressive. That is impressive. Longer than five word answer, but still succinct. Okay. Uh, Critical Role was a home D&D campaign done by a bunch of professional voice actors in the industry. They decided to live stream it to audiences. It became very popular. They were like, hey, do you guys want to see an animated episode of this? And then they got a bunch of money and were like, we're going to make a TV show. You did tell me they raised money like ridiculously quickly, right? Yes, they that had a Kickstarter. Was, that to, was the Kickstarter to fund for their animated, an animated special. And, yeah. You know, raised like broke records, raised millions of dollars very quickly. So it was a very fan driven, like the people who love Critical Role and yes. Vox Machina love, love it. it. Like and the fans the, made it happen. There's a lot of them. Yep. Nice. Yep. The, the critter community, as they call it, is enormous. And then on top of that, they still have their regular games that they run they've done their own so like series. live stream games people can watch kind of they don't live stream anymore they're pre-recorded tying these points together you have what started out as voice actors playing D on a live stream through geek and sundry yep. and today they produce television they still run their weekly games and now are in their third campaign with bell's hells they produce Bells, books. Hells. That is the name of that group. That's cool. Uh, Wait, the name of the D&D group or the, camp, the their party. campaign? Their party within that, that universe. Oh, that's yeah. fun. Yeah, so, so their first campaign is Vox Machina was their group's name. So Critical Role yes. is a group of live streamers <laughs> whose first campaign was Vox Machina. Yes. And Vox Machina is now a TV show on Amazon Prime. Yes. Funded by fans. And yeah, now Amazon. And Amazon. Yeah. Bezos wanted it Bezos. personally. Um. <laughs> Their second campaign, their party name was the Mighty Nine. There are not nine members, <laughs> but and it really just started in an episode where they a lot of them just kept rolling nines, yeah. and it didn't help that Liam's character Caleb Widogast spoke with a it's German, Zemnian in the world, but German in real life accent. So nine became a joke oh, at the that table. That fun. then yeah, oh my goodness, and just the going back to the Amazon thing, I think it was the. Uh, the Honest Trailers series. They did one for The Legend of Vox Machina and Matt Mercer came on as a guest star. And it's like, yeah, I've got some time to do this before Jeff Bezos takes me to space. <laughs> anyway, today Critical Role produces books. They produce... TV just, shows. Yes, games uh, like Ukatoa. Uh, I mean, just th- they are in so many spaces and have an absurd amount of reach. And it all goes back to playing D&D. 
and the experience of that and the things that happened in the theater of the mind of their game and in the world that Matthew Mercer and all of them worked to create, they now get to tell these stories again in animation. And it's been wild and wonderful to see that happen. Ben, I want to circle back to something you said earlier at the top of the episode about how D&D is a place where we can sort of have these big imaginative things to explore inner conflict externally, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that it has been explicitly stated in Stranger Things that the kids are using the language of Dungeons and Dragons to understand the insanity that they're encountering around them, right? Because the Demogorgon... The Demogorgon in Stranger Things doesn't look like the Demogorgon in the Monster Manual, does it? No. No. Likewise, the Mind Flayer. Yeah, that that is true. The Mind Flayer is closer, but yeah, no, they don't look the same. Both noodly. I've seen pictures. <laughs> yeah. Both very... Mind, <laughs> mind Flayers aren't that big. They're not a kaiju in... In the, in, the, in, the, in the monster mind flare in Stranger Things is so cool, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to your point, Larissa, and the one Ben made earlier, I think the thing that connects these two properties the most is both of them use Dungeons and Dragons as a vehicle to explore and process grief. Yeah, mm. and especially with the characters that they've chosen to focus on, the stories they've chosen to tell, and, and we've talked about like especially over the course of just these last few years. We've enough time has passed that we've gotten to see the pandemic reflected back to us in our media before we got on the mics. We we're talking about Bob Burnham's Inside, uh, Glass Onion, yep, or like the last season of Peaky Blinders. It was kind of impossible to just overlook kind of the shroud that was around that whole final season. And then, and realistically, you have an audience who, whether they are fully processing it for their own selves, likely have an appetite for content that speaks to this in an authentic way and the stories of Max Mayfield the grief and the loss and the anger that comes with it you could also apply everything I just laid out there to Percy DiRolo both of their stories deal with that in interesting ways and you get an abundance of time and just interesting perspective to understand some of what Max is going through and how she's being attacked when you think about how Vecna works and just when you layer game mechanics on top of that, a character like Vecna is terrifying. Mm. He can kill without being identified. It's entirely psychic based until it manifests physically. And at that point it's too late to stop him. And then you have a character like Percy where it's on the surface, his entire weaponry and kit, and the fact that he created Exandria is the world of critical roles D&D games he created Exandria's first firearms but did so with help that uh, comes at a cost that we see in the 12th episode of season one because I remember watching the season for the first time and having now at this point kind of a deliberate lack of knowledge about the about Vox Machina as a campaign like now that we're getting the show I'm actually really not going back and seeking things because I don't I would like the show now to fill in the gaps and try to experience some of that for the first time. I still know some of the broad strokes and elements of the story as it'll move forward, but it's been wonderful to kind of see how these stories are being told in this format. And I thought it was wild when we got the battle and the showdown with the Briarwoods in episode 11. And it's like, well, they just took out the villain they've been building up all season long. So how is this going to, Oh, (laughs) And you realize what Percy's been dealing with as Orthax comes out to play. And 
there are definitely some parallels to draw between that episode, episode 12 of Vox Machina, and Dear Billy, episode 4 of season 4 of Stranger Things. Well, and that's that's almost mirrored in Stranger Things because, you know, the the original villains, the Demogorgon and the Mind Flayer, are very external threats, similar to the Briarwoods, where, you know, they've done terrible things, like they kidnapped Will. Did they kidnap Will? The conspiracies abound. They seem to have. Well, or was it, it Vecna well, all along? And that's where, like, you can tell. Well, okay, yeah. yeah, Vecna was running things, but, like, these are the villains at from the, the time. From the perspective. Yeah, from the perspective of the characters. The Demogorgon snatched him. Yeah, and the He's mind so player. scary. He's all mouth. <laughs> you know, turned yeah. people into goo. Yeah. Uh, so that's a very, like, external threat to the characters, but Vecna's a very, like, internal threat because he preys on your own insecurities and, like, and trauma. self-hatred yeah. and trauma and doubt, which is the same thing Orthax does to Percy, you know? It's like, yeah, oh, we beat the Briarwoods, like the main villains are gone, and it's like, uh, no. You, the hardest battle is yet to come, and that's your internal battle. Mm-hmm. Going off of, again, just the parallel between, like, okay, we have the Briarwoods, and now we have Orthax, and we were already talking earlier about Vecna, and we see once Silas Briarwood goes down, and the party is starting to realize what they have to do, they have to deal with Percy and Orthax. Meanwhile, Delilah is trying to reach out to the Whispered One, uh, what she scream in that chamber like honor our bargain uh, as she's trying to reach Vecna it's always wonderful to meet a scary villain and then see who they work for because that immediately gives that character so much cred like Darth Vader yeah, and the Emperor yep, yep. Or, Zuko or, and his father yes or you have I'm, I'm so proud of you for making that <laughs> <laughs> I've still only seen three episodes hey, but- <laughs> Really, that there. was a good episode to show you. <laughs> yes, it was. Stand and fight, Prince Zuko. Yeah. No, the uh, or you have avid Batman fan. The fact that Batman Begins shows. Oh, we have this crime boss, Carmine Falcone. Oh, he's working for the Scarecrow. Oh no, the Scarecrow is working for and going from there. And we've kind of gotten to see that with Stranger Things. And you can easily do that with D and D. In fact, the system kind of kind of encourages it because it's like, hey. Here's this challenge rating five bad guy that you guys have been having some difficulties with at your current level. He works for this challenge rating 20 bad guy who you guys aren't ready to fight yet because he'll kill you all in one round. But we can introduce him as a character and as an antagonist and make that character a part of the storytelling. Mm. Giving everybody opportunities to grow, Mm -hmm. to try things, to level up through their experiences. Well, and that's another thing. And you just mentioned Avatar because I think on previous episodes, and I can't even remember all the contexts, if you're going to praise that show for anything that it does really well, they do an amazing job of showing the power crawl of their characters. Just watching everything. Well, they're both featuring stories of children. Yep. Well, between Stranger Things and mm-hmm. Avatar The Last Airbender, I can't really speak for Vox Machina on that one. But with, given that it's no, based on none D&D, of them are children. you inherently have a power crawl. They're going to continue to get better, unlock new abilities, discover new things about themselves. And we get to see that progression, even if the characters are adults, functioning with a similar power crawl scenario. Yeah, and I guess that kind of tracks in Stranger Things as well, because go back to the first season and when all of the characters finally meet up at the end, they're like very lost and not entirely sure how to handle the situation or what to do. And then, you know, I have my own thoughts on, you know, how good of a storytelling device this is. But in the third season, they're hucking bombs at a giant monster because they're all, you know, they've been through this before. So it's the same, you know, progression. That makes sense. So I have a question for you two. 
I, as I admitted earlier in the podcast, know very little about Vox Machina or Critical Role. I was excited to be introduced to that world and learn more. On the contrary, if that's the correct way to use that phrase, I have been obsessed with Stranger Things for the past (laughs) six months. I have a long list of fun facts that I could share. Listener, you may enjoy, but I won't bog you down with all of them. With that said... I am curious because I'm more of a visual person, but to me, there's some standout visual imagery in Stranger Things, and it's one of the things I love most about the show because it does such a good job of taking that internal that the characters are experiencing and creating this sense of mood or finding a way to visually depict something they are internally experiencing. And because it's such a human, gentle show, it's something almost always that everybody can relate or resonate with experiencing. I'm sure that's why it is so popular. And this is a long-winded way to get to this question. To either of you, are there any visuals from the show that stuck with you? I have a couple. If I may kind of piggyback on that with our connection that we made to Vox Machina as well as to Avatar, because one thing that you'll often think or you'll often hear about when talking about animation is that you're able to do so many more interesting things than you could ever do in live action. But another thing you can do with animation is kind of an estab- kind of establish the way a character looks and stick with it. Like even as that power crawl happens and these characters change and evolve and you might show age to an extent if it's relevant to your story, but you can have a character in an animated story voiced by the same actor. I mean, Kevin Conroy is obviously someone come who comes to mind uh the iconic voice of batman you can have the icon the iconography of how that character appears visually remains somewhat set in stone across decades of media interpretation like the simpsons how yep. old would lisa be today right and so thinking about stranger things i remember one of my first exposure to it's of all things was cosplay Oh, because that's I saw it represented at cons. Wait, I think. did you see yeah. David Harbour as eleven? Is that <laughs> well? I think we had people in front of us when we did that cosplay contest back in 2017, which would have been like less than a year after the first season had dropped, or close to that. And we had people in front of us dressed, I think, as Hopper, Eleven, maybe Nancy and Barb. Oh, that's yeah. fun. Probably, I I can't remember. I want to get but... dressed up. Well, and it was just... Let's do it. So, in terms of iconic visuals, at least as far as the characters go, like, they established some iconic ones right out of the gate. Because the Hopper has now been literally all over the map. But when you think of Jim Hopper, the first visual that probably still comes into your head is his police chief uniform. Mm. Or, obviously, when we think of Dustin, you're almost always going to be picturing him in a ball cap. Or if we're thinking about Eleven, they went back to it in the fourth season, she's almost always going to have short cropped hair. Mm. Yeah. Not to get, you know, lost in the weeds, but I do think that was the biggest, not the biggest, but one of the biggest strengths of the first season of stranger things was the iconography. Mm-hmm. Like they leaned so heavily. They did such a good job of so it. And they stayed staying good at it. Masterfully, it's such a pretty show. Yes. Visually, it's always still pretty, but the iconography, I feel like, has dropped off a bit. I think the only thing that's up mm-hmm. to the same level as the first season is the Scoops Ahoy stuff from season three. I disagree. Three. I disagree. I would disagree. I appreciate your thought there, Caleb. Yeah. And I think that the way Max was framed in season four, episode four, is also something that is sticking as iconically. Because there's even that house in the Chicago suburb area that de- decorated 
outside for Halloween to look like that scene mm. and they had so many people coming to their house that the homeowners association got all upset and they had to stop <laughs> having they had to like block off the street nobody yeah. else could come because there's something about that bright color of her jacket and the i don't know i would say that for me maybe it's just because i am too into the weeds of watching the show i think that they're able to capture it in some other moments later as well i'll agree with you i think that is the best just scene bar none in season four um I have a Metallica soundtrack that would <laughs> offer to potentially usurp Bro, we that can't, spot. But we can't get lost. Because I have in terms on season four. Yeah, but also in terms of iconic visuals, holy <laughs> Eddie playing Master of Puppets in the Upside Down that was pretty awesome. would have yeah. to be the number that one answer. Awesome. And then they killed him because they don't know how to go away from their formulaic writing styles. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, no, they open to criticism and everybody loved Eddie. I mean, oh my goodness. Because we're already kind of hitting at, uh, going back to that animation point I was making, because of how you have to progress time with a cast of young actors who are going to age as the story Especially is told. Especially when you can't film during a pandemic. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're going to have the way that those characters are interpreted change. Arguably, Max might be the most visually consistent. Because she just looks, Sadie Sink just looks young, the way her face is shaped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then and then also they've kept her. She keeps the yeah. same style. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, like her hair is the same throughout all the seasons. And then and then add a skateboard and you're there. Yeah, because mm-hmm. Lucas's style changes very much over the course of the show, which is an interesting parallel given he's the character who, as we see, has the strongest desire to fit in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He he he's drifting the furthest away from their like D and D nerdy kid background i guess will stays pretty like similar in his like wardrobe. visual appearance and wardrobe throughout the whole show but also again picture Just the yeah. most unfortunate 80s haircut of all time yeah <laughs> though offset at least early on because i loved the like back to Fu- back to the future to michael j fox life preserver jacket that they had him in early on which again season one Oh, it's yeah. often the most iconic yeah. looks for the and characters. And he's, he's not even in season one that much. Question, though. Do we perceive season one looks to be iconic because that is when the season and the show were received the biggest, like when it broke out? Or is the iconicness built into the show itself in that season more strongly than others? You know, the first appearance of something, if it becomes a massively popular thing, is always going to be cemented to some extent in people's minds. Yeah, like this is a weird analogy, but like I was about to make a weird one too. Go ahead. Tom Brady will always be pictured in a Patriots uniform, even though he doesn't play for them anymore. But like that's where he became famous. <laughs> I was going all the way back to Get Smart, uh, because you see Maxwell Smart driving some sort of like sports car of the era uh, up to Control's headquarters, and in the first two seasons, it's a red convertible. They had three more seasons after that. But when you picture Maxwell Smart and the credits for that show, everyone's going to picture the red car. First mm-hmm. time we saw him, most iconic. That makes sense. The visual iconography conversation is an interesting one with D&D because it's theater of the mind. Yes. Mm-hmm. I yeah. was going to get to that. Yep. Because in theory, for so many people at the table, the DM is going to convey what information they can. Also, when we're talking about Vox Machina and the world of Exandria and just everything Critical Role does... People who talk about big DMs and the ones that everybody knows or recognizes, like people were like, oh, I really like Abrea Iyengar, or Brennan Lee Mulligan is the best, or Matthew Mercer is the, is the best of them all. The people who point to Matt, 
usually point to two things. One, obviously, his voices for characters because of the voice acting background, but two, his ability to craft and describe language for the settings and the places the characters find themselves in. He does that Much maybe... Much more immersive. Yeah, he does that better maybe than anyone else in the craft. Yeah. I've listened to episodes of Critical Role and gotten chills when he's describing, especially like creepy, scary stuff where I'm like, oh my God, this is... Uh, I don't I like it. I feel when ben, do- ben does really good voices for scary monsters. It's <laughs> it, ma- it just makes me so scared. I giggle. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Which is, that's like a universal experience because at the Critical Role table, Travis Willingham, who plays Grog, uh, oh my god Nakino. are we the same person you're kind of the same person because he always freaks out when matt does stuff at the table like he loves when he does those creepy stuff he's always like oh yeah he gets way into it yeah travis like visibly freaked out uh on the subject of stranger things visuals i think it's really neat i have two favorite episode three i okay I could sit here all day and try and list which of my episodes is the favorite across all four seasons. But I do love, in season one, the episode called The Monster. To refresh everyone's memory, it's the one where Elle wakes up in the woods and she's in that iconic pink dress. And she goes to find Mike and Dustin and they're at the top of that quarry. And those two little boys who are bullies are there ready to seek revenge. The classic 80s bully. Yes. Challenge rating one. Yeah. But still will kill you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then there's that whole back and forth. But at the end of that interaction between Elle and Dustin and Mike and those two little bullies, there's still the same. I don't know if this is the right way to use the word, but like a visual motif of where the three children are on the ground, like hugging each other. And it is the same. It's framed the same way in season four, episode four, when Max comes back down from the sky. And I just think that's neat for the show because I think what, because Caleb, you and I were having this conversation the other day. You argued that. You I don't think, remember what I said. So you think the Duffer brothers and the creators of Stranger Things should have kept their original model, which was to do a different story each season yes. with entirely new characters. And I wholeheartedly disagree. That's fine. Because to me, I think that the characters are what makes the show so interesting to watch and why I feel compelled to keep watching it. To me, those moments where there are people just trying to come close together to face a really big threat that's really difficult to understand and navigate, whether that's your schoolyard bully who's trying to kill you because it's the 80s and everything's extreme and it sounds like a really scary time to grow up, or if it is Vecna, this big demon monster man who's an invisible force that can suck your eyeballs out your skull. Like Both times, they get through it by being together with each other. Well, and it gave them an opportunity because, like, they lose some of the just total mystery that you might have if it was an anthology show where every season we're following a different group of characters, perhaps in a different time, definitely in a different place, facing a different set of threats that may or may not be related to the last ones Like the restart of a new campaign. Yeah. Stranger Things has done a couple of things well in that context as they progress through the seasons because so many of the characters that we introduce kind of become the uninitiated character who needs things explained to them. So and then they get killed. Depending. Unless they're well, Argyle, I love him. Or Unless Robin or Robin. Uh, like there are other examples that have gotten to stick around and have also become iconic in their own ways. Uh, that's another thing I was about to bring up because they are also very good 
at adding characters who immediately have an iconic look and you usually, again, associate it with the first time you saw them. If you picture Robin, are you picturing her in a Scoops Ahoy uniform? No, because I've watched it so many times. <laughs> okay, fair. Or Billy in head-to-toe denim stepping out of his Does car. Does he ever change out yeah. of that? He, okay, fair enough. It's not head-to-toe denim. He just has very tight denim pants and a tank top. Here I am, Rocky like a hurricane. <laughs> but then maybe, yeah, you, you said the one that might, well, I, or the two that season four gave us that are immediately iconic, Argyle being one and Eddie being the other. The other thing that season four especially did well was they had to find ways to, we've been in the Knives Out, Glass Onion headspace for a little bit now. They found unique ways to unpeel the onion and give you new information and were able to add new elements to old stories where, oh, we actually hadn't seen everything that we thought we saw and how it played out. Mm. Recontextualizing your earlier experiences in the show. Mm-hmm. 100%. And just... And that's kind of, and that's another, and I've talked about this with you and with Megan. It's fun to, referring to conversations on the campaign diaries, it's fun to weave a story together as a dungeon master where you kind of have the obvious A plot of like whatever villain you're fighting or whatever specific mission that you're on. But B plot, C plot, however many, are still actively happening and become greater or lesser in importance depending on what scenario you're facing. And some little detail or character that your party met who they didn't think for a second about could suddenly end up being extremely important to a plot line later on. And they were introduced in a story that, that you chair yeah, that you're able to tell. A chair? Oh, yeah. Oh, did we just both go GDC? back? Hi, Shokan? Yeah. Oh, goodness. See, again, the impact of D&D. You were able to reference a piece of furniture that made us both think of the same character in a campaign that we played in eight years ago. Oh my god, was that eight years ago? It would have been around when Melissa and I first started dating, so yeah. <laughs> I need a second. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Woof. <laughs> yeah, it just it shows to what extent. Yeah, for your context, and the first campaign, D&D campaign that Ben and I played together, uh, there was this old man mm-hmm. who was just always... He would just appear places and was always sitting in a chair. Have you seen Middle Ditch and Schwartz? Because that would be highly not. relevant. Actually, this I've moment. seen I've seen bits. I've seen bits of it. But he would always just be sitting in this chair, but the chair looked like it'd been there for centuries. And he was like this weird NPC that we never really knew what was going on with. But he always he always just showed up places too. Uh, turns out he was like one of the not yeah he was like one of the main villains like in the end. But we didn't know that until like oh, the very cool. end of the campaign. That's a cool twist. Yeah. Who wrote that? Lucas Gerke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he had time powers, so the chair just always had been wherever it showed up. Because he would just go back in time and wait for us wherever we were. So to us, it seemed like he was teleporting, but to him, he just like went and waited someplace for like a century for us to show up again. Oh, that sounds miserable. He wasn't a happy he, he, guy. He, yeah, and he lived for, he was That's immortal. That's your hobby? So. Is oh. immortality worth it at that point? Like, why? <laughs> Join oh. me, Mina. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Immortality <God>. waits. <laughs> we'll take a cruise. We are writing love letter and a- after love letter to Stephen, which we should have also said this much earlier in the show. Congratulations! Yes! <laughs> they are a family of five, those Stahovskis. Uh, we are so uh, happy for them uh, and wish uh, Stephen and Georgia and their three little ones all the best yeah. uh, as we record this in late January. Yeah, just a little over a week <laughs> after they became outnumbered. 
Uh, and we look forward to getting Stephen back on the podcast as soon as possible, probably to record the spotlight for this episode, if I had to guess. And this is where, because we've also now all had the experience of playing RPGs, D&D, or otherwise with Steven. Like, the fact that you're able to tell this story in a long form over a span of years. When it comes to yeah. Vox Machina or, like, the story within the campaign? Both. Okay. Like, the fact that they spend years playing the same campaign on a live stream, the fact that we played for the multiple years that we did with Lucas in college that made it so you could reference a chair and I knew exactly what character you were mm-hmm. talking about, and the fact that we've been playing the game that I've been running now for a little over a year and a half. It just, it really makes it so you can explore and inhabit those characters in a way that no TV series, even one based on a D&D campaign, is going to be able to show you. Yeah, it's a whole different medium. Right. Although Vox Machina is already doing a really, really good job of streamlining things and keeping true to what happened in their game from what I understand. Part of why I wanted to have this conversation in the first place was to really like dig into, I guess, kind of some of the the more challenging parallels to Max's struggle in Percy's because they are visually represented in a lot of similar ways in terms of how we watch. Similar color palettes, like mm-hmm. there's a similar moodiness to the whole experience and, and intensity. Yeah, or and then in the way that the villain, whether we're talking about Vecna or Orthax, is attacking them. Like what they see is not reality. Uh, it's no, it's not actually your mom. It's no, it's not actually this person you have a vendetta against. It's one of your friends. And getting you to a point that on some level you're at peace with your own self-destruction because you don't see another option. They they both are pushed to that point in each of those episodes. I would argue that Max is not. I would argue that Vecna is trying to push Max yes. to that point, but he fails because of friendship. And it's and that Kate sentimentality Bush. that makes Stranger <laughs> Things the best show on TV. Yeah, no, I agree with that because I, I think she is sort of, she's teetering on that edge where, you know, she doesn't know her own feelings because dealing with something as traumatic as, you know, Billy dying literally in front of her and in her arms and trying to process all that, you know, at such a young age. Yeah, she'd have, I don't know how you deal with that. That's a very difficult thing. So, uh, of course, she's going to have those moments of, you know, do I wish I had died as well? Like those super difficult, tough questions. And, yeah, I think you're right. She doesn't ever actually because like, of friendship. go there because mm-hmm. of friendship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what brings Percy back as well uh, between his his allies and his sister pulling back on him against what he's up against with Orthax. And I guess, or I guess maybe I, in my head, kind of confused where Max was at in terms of a willingness to use herself as bait by the time they get to the end of the season. Yes, because at but that she was point, motivated yes, by something different. Because they could take back now in the process. Mm-hmm. Yes, sorry. Yeah. yeah, you're talking about the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And I think even in his, in season four, episode four, something I noticed on our rewatch, because of the power of friendship, there is the moment when Max is in the vision that Vecna's created when they're at the graveyard, the really intense one. And Vecna appears as bully and he's like saying mean things and she falls back and runs. She runs far enough away for him from him that when specifically when she is calling for Lucas and Dustin is when Vecna's power weakens and she's able to walk into his mind space. That's when you start to see the red and she can start moving toward what he's doing. 
which I thought was an interesting touch. Yeah, because he's he's surprised. He's like, "How did you get here?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can appreciate to what extent Stranger Things and Vox Machina make really good use of their prototypes, because there are lines from Vox Machina that people will do like different like supercuts or show like, "Oh, this is when Taliesin said this line originally at the table in their D and D campaign," and then here's Percy saying like, "Yours was the face I saw when murder entered my heart." I, I think I've Close to that line, if, if not exactly on it. And then seeing that represented in animation. And I remember thinking in season three, one of the darkest... Of Stranger Things? Yes, of Stranger Things. One of the darkest and coolest scenes of the whole show was when Billy appeared in a vision to Elle. Oh, that is very cool. Very yeah, scary. The layering of the if voices. Yeah, makes yeah. me get so scared, yeah. I giggle again. Like, you, it's, oh, it's yeah. spooky. Yeah. <laughs> you let us in. Ooh. And now... You are going to have to let us stay. It's and just the way so he moves well done. Is like one, yeah. two, right? And yeah, because in hindsight, that is a hundred percent a prototype for Vecna. Yeah, the way in which he appears, the way he which the he way speaks, he and interacts with the characters. Yep, it's all there, and that became much more obvious on Melissa and I's most recent rewatch. Matt and Ross Duffer, the co-creators of Stranger Things, as you very well may know, had talked about. During season one, right before the season was released, the folks over at Netflix asked them to sort of make this big explanation of what exactly was happening in the Upside Down or what the rules were there. I forget exactly how it's phrased, so I can look it up if need be. Is it after season one? Yeah, it was before season one came out, but like after it was made. They were asked to go back in the writer's room to figure out the mechanics of what was happening in that world. And I don't remember the reason as to why, but they point to Netflix asking them to have that conversation to being where so much the direction of the series has taken has been built upon, is being able to sort of have that guiding compass. So it's interesting knowing that, how they must have planned ahead and thought through what they wanted one slash Vecna slash Henry to be like, and were able to give that sort of direction to the guy who plays Billy, whose name I forget. Dacre Montgomery. Dacre? Dacre Montgomery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't do Australian without it starting to sound like Captain Boomerang. Neither can I, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Dacre Montgomery. Yeah, no, he... Sorry he, to all our Australian listeners. The studio coming back to them and asking them to figure out those rules is the type of request for feedback that I have seen DMs and others, like in online D&D groups, will post something like, ask me about my world, because I can either give you the answer that I already have for this question you're asking, or you're going to make me think of one, which is going to make me flesh out the world even more and have answers for questions. And in turn, make the world better for the party and the players in your game. Or if you're building an entire world in a TV show, make it so you know where you're going in later seasons as more information comes available. I would argue then, if we're talking about the parallels between how D&D-inspired properties can help us navigate the internal world in an externally represented way, I think it is equally valuable then to pay attention to where you see your curiosity drawing you in your own life. Like, what are you asking questions about? How are you exploring the world? Because I think that that can shape where your attention is and what your experience of life is like just as much as a D&D campaign can be shaped by asking yourself those same questions or asking them at the DM. Does that make sense? Yes, because you just reminded me of another meme I've seen in a D&D space that is like, 
my therapist asked me to tell them my D&D character's backstory and they were able to identify all of my insecurities. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can't not write yourself out of, like, you are you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you gotta be pretty aware of yourself to not let that bleed into your work. It's kind of like those, I've seen people online will make real life D&D character sheets for themselves. So they gain experience by doing like basic tasks. Oh, that's fun. I know what I like about Stranger Things. And I think that's how cute and sweet it is while it's still like spooky and fun. Do you feel like there's something consistent within you guys that is so continually drawn to stories about D&D or experiences with them or to Stranger Things? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but based on the conversation thus far, I assume I'm coming in number one top Stranger Things fan. But you two most definitely have me beat as far as your level of involvement and enthusiasm for things like Vox Machina. And I'm catching, I'm getting there, but I'm not there with you yet on d and I'm, I'm lower in my experience point and level personally in comparison. Stranger Things, along with a lot of the media that we consume, and I can think of things that we've already talked about in this conversation, like Avatar or Batman, or we could also talk about something like Star Wars or Cowboy Bebop where you kind of have a cast that's the found family aspect that you're building around, uh, which also goes back to five-man band and just Guardians the, all... of the Galaxy. Yep, yep. Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, yep. yeah. <laughs> I really like stories about broken people coming together and healing the cracks in each other. And at least for me, you know, I haven't watched much of Campaign 1 of Critical Role, nor Campaign 3, but that is basically the entire point of their second campaign. Oh, that's All neat. their characters have like trauma and all these just baggage that they bring with themselves into this party but over the course of, you know, adventuring together, they heal each other. Uh, and I just think there's something really beautiful about that because I'm a big believer in you know, everyone's like, oh, you always gotta help yourself or whatever, but I think other people have such an amazing ability to like impact positive change on people they're close to. So I really like stories that focus on that. And you could argue Stranger Things is the same way. I like Stranger Things a lot. I really do. I just have critiques about it. That's fair. I think that it's good and a okay to have critiques about the thing that you like. Yeah, absolutely. Because like one of the earliest ones you and I talked about when we were first getting Storytelling Breakdown going was the don't show the Russians at the beginning of season three because it that takes away the mystery. Out. Yeah. Although season three is my yeah. least favorite of the seasons. I think it is the weakest, but then again, thinking back to the most recent rewatch, I realized on that viewing when they're showing the Russians device and how they're tunneling into the upside down and I'm watching that and I'm just going, Oh, that's the most visually interesting set piece that they've had in the show to this point in terms of just how that device is moving and working oh, yeah. and everything with it. And I'm thinking to myself... It looks like they, a transformer. Not yeah. like a power thing, but like a Michael Bay. Yeah, and it's just like... That, <laughs> boom, boom. That probably <laughs> took up a significant portion of the budget and they wanted to show what kind of a strong footing they were coming out on, so I understand why that's there. Yeah. And oh, they've talked word. too, Duff, the Duffer brothers have talked about how their favorite sequels throughout the years were creating sequels that kept similar story elements and some and the people felt similar but they were in different genres 
I don't know how successfully that was achieved, but they talked about how like the first season is the first season being kids on bikes feeling like this love letter to 80s films and the third season being more like your summer blockbuster, which is why so many of those I they didn't say this. This is my own that why so many of those mystery elements are missing from it. Yeah. Yeah. And and they lean so hard into like some of the 80s materialism and different things that uh well we both recently watched that uh Patrick H. Wilms video on what right. is the most 80s movie of all time and Stranger Things season 3 overlaps the most heavily with some of his criteria. Right. It's like Stranger Things season 1 is like E.T. or Stand by Me and then season 3 is Rocky 4. Yeah, Rocky 4. <laughs> <laughs> it's also kind of progressed like and this compare and this comparison doesn't necessarily work because like they can't all be the Empire Strikes Back, but like the middle of the story is your low point for your heroes. And at the end of season three, Elle no longer has her powers. We think Hopper is dead. They're scattering across the country. I never thought Hopper was dead. Well, fair. <laughs> <laughs> but so the heroes are at that low point. And just in terms of like audience reaction, that low point usually especially to I me, mean, granted, and I'm thinking of myself like as a younger audience, like growing up. Like, I thought Empire and Back to the Future 2 were maybe the weakest of the trilogies. And then now growing up, it's like, hold on, no, no, no. This is the meat of the story. This Back is, to the Future are... 2 stresses me out. <laughs> I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's stressful to watch. It's just, it's like how I feel about Spider-Man 2 of the Tobey Maguire films. Like, best of the Spider-Man movies. Very stressful to watch. Think he's just having a rough go with things. <laughs> I'm noticing in this conversation we're finding ourselves so drawn to so many different properties in ways that happens a little bit in every storytelling breakdown conversations, <laughs> which is fun, but especially this time. And I think it's because of how D&D is so much about collaborative storytelling that I know for myself when I sit at Ben's campaign table and he's telling me something fun about a new monster that I ain't never heard of. I'm like, oh, that one's like Mike Wazowski. It has the big eyeball. <laughs> Well, and it's this that, is like in Star Wars. This is the Yoda going to be in the swamp. Like it just mm -hmm. invites you to think about all these different places where you've seen similar story elements play out. Yeah. Right. Because when you write everything you've ever read comes out and you have everybody at the table pouring out everything that they've experienced at that point. And so when you have an entire table of creative personalities who all get to impact the story in interesting ways what comes out of it is going to be one a wild and unique combination that you could not get with any other combination of individuals and have it turn out the same way but also find a way to tie in i mean people will joke like as a dm you're going to plagiarize every single work that you've ever experienced i would i would argue remix mm -hmm. you're going to find ways to pull from the stories that have really inspired you and figure out what buttons you need to press to make the story compelling and interesting in the world a place that your players end up being as invested in as you are. I don't know. d and is fun, too, because it's sort of like the opposite side of using humor to deal with, like, difficult situations or, like, difficult internal emotions. Because, you know, you'll have comedians who will talk about, you know, very difficult or hard times in their life that they've gone through it, but they use it or they talk about it through humorous means as a way to, like, make it, more easily digestible and D&D &D can be kind of the same thing just instead of humor it's like Fantasy. action and adventure yeah it's like 
we could talk about my, you know, childhood trauma or whatever, or we could represent it through, you know, it wasn't this, me. It was that guy. Yeah, like. this this monster with a bunch of eyes that I get to smack with a giant broadsword. There are some monsters uh, that that's very easy to do in D anD D when you have like uh, creatures. Ironically, like one of the ones that you guys recently faced, like the Nothics. The Noth- Be- because your Nothics voice is one of my favorite things ever. Been and I don't think they really even spoke. It was just like no. the movement and kind of just the how they sounded as they so were ambling good. through the environment. So scary. Well, but it's <laughs> these the, but, one eyeballed. Well, zombie monsters there was a wonderful theory as to why they were there and when and then how it played out in practice because while challenge rating is kind of arbitrary it's definitely something to factor in uh nothics have the ability to like learn secrets about the players kind of dig into their mind and that can be something really interesting to kind of role play at the table plus they kind of served as the appetizer for what you guys are about to run into with the mind flare and that would have played out that way if Nothics, I should have maybe altered their stat block a little bit because I think they're like challenge rating two or four, which at this point, you guys are well equipped to just bulldoze at level seven. Yes. So you guys made pretty short Gorg work of the Nothics. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was nine of them surrounded you guys and five of them died before the rest ran off. It was not a long encounter. But you can find ways to finding what really makes those characters tick in those moments of adversity and putting pressing the right buttons and putting the right monsters in front of them to get those amazing My stories. My brain clicked yeah. a connection yes. of Ooh. using monsters to represent Lay childhood it trauma. Oh, no. It's like what Blackbeard does in Our Flag Means Death with the Kraken. <laughs> it's exactly like what happens in Our Flag Means Death. <laughs> yeah, that actually works really well. He personifies a tragic event in his childhood as this monster. Yeah. Interesting. That works really well. Mm. D&D. Watch our flag means death. Anything else that we want to hit on Vox Machina and Stranger Things? Like the, the parallels between these two are wild. I am so ex- Also, I should should have put this in much sooner. We have recorded this the week after the first 3 episodes of season of season 2 have dropped. So if we so didn't good. yeah, if we didn't include something that at this point when you're listening to this, seems like we absolutely should have talked about it. It's because for us, as we're recording this, it has not happened yet. We are time travelers. Yeah. <laughs> so from the past yes, to your present, <laughs> back to the future, <laughs> which it sounds like we will be watching soon. Welcome to Hobbiton. Welcome to Hobbiton. <laughs> Woohoo! And unexpected party business. Unexpected party business. The spotlight portion of this episode. Lord of the Rings, the scenes of power. We just took in a couple of scenes from the time that the first, the Fellowship of the Ring spends in Hobbiton. We, we did kind of the arrival of Gandalf and, and him speaking with Frodo. Cute. Uh, and you're getting to see some of the landscape. You're getting to see the interaction between Gandalf and Frodo because uh, Gandalf's known Frodo all of Frodo's life. And then you get to see a little bit more of the hobbits in their natural environment. And we all agreed we would love to live in Hobbiton. And then we skipped ahead a little bit and we took in Bilbo's 111th birthday party to kind of give us the, the full scope of hobbit life. His um, big birthday bash. His yeah. big birthday bash. So scenes three and five on your extended edition DVD. One observation I'll tee this up just 
to, to your well enthusiasm for everything Lord of the Rings, but also especially for music. I realized recently when I was well switching some music from one playlist to another for various D and D and high fantasy things. And I realized that the extended edition soundtrack in some spots just doesn't have the same energy because by virtue of having to squeeze the motifs into shorter moments, the shorter version of the soundtrack, at least uh, thinking specifically of the bridge of Casa doom, it just moves more. Yeah. I'm I'm getting us completely away from that scene, but I was thinking about this, the music with the, uh, the dragon at the party as well. Also yeah. felt Firework a more spaced dragon, out in this very version. cool. There are very few scenes where there isn't music. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's very few scenes where it's it's just the dialogue or just the ambient noise. Uh, and so when you've got the extended edition, where you're going from a, a roughly two hour and twenty minute theatrical release to a nearly four hour extended release, there's just more there. Stretching That's a out. lot of movie. There's a lot of movie. It's a lot of movie. It's a lot of movie. It's all all of it is perfect and wonderful, and you should watch it. <laughs> that way and only Not, that way it shouldn't be your first experience though no I will agree with that I if maintain if you've never seen the movies before do not watch the extended no, versions don't, first no don't put yourself through that unless watch you've the read the books theatrical versions if you've read the books I think you maybe you can skip the theatricals I don't know anyone on this planet who's who read the books, read the books and, not, and seen the not seen the movies yeah good point so in this day and age movies have been well, out for nearly two decades those opening scenes give you a really good idea of life in the Shire the culture of the hobbits being very community based. You notice when I we were watching and I said, That's the whole town. The whole town is there. And he names every major family clan and every family. clan uh, at the party, names them Bellbow. Proud has. feet. Like Proud a foot. Mayor. Well, the name is Proudfoot. Proudfoot. Uh, and but apparently Proud the foot but the plural of the plural of it. Right, is exactly. That's the Bradley joke. books. Uh Grace Gardles. Tooks. Young me always misheard that because I was like, race car, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> race cardles, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so, like, he knows everybody and he's related to half of them because everybody's one big giant, essentially one big giant family. It's a little bit, maybe you could describe it a, a little bit of backwater, but they are. They are largely ignored by the outside world, which is good for them because they're all half-sized and good. they care about good green earth and mm. good food and good brew Good company, good, good times. Good company, good times. I think in life it is my goal to actually just be a hobbit. In, it sounds like a good life. In the book The Hobbit, everyone thinks Bilbo is very strange for wanting to leave the Shire and go on an adventure. And he did. Because right? hobbits don't travel. Went Why would hobbits leave? You know, they have everything they need right here. Uh-huh. So he went and had the adventure. That's part of the reason why he's so rich, when we were discussing. Mm. He went out, he had his adventure, he came back with treasures. He was already rich to begin with, though, because he owned Bag End, which is like the nicest house in the on the block. So venturing out and gathering in treasure county. and then coming back with it all Very didn't unusual. prompt further adventures. People are like, oh, cool, this guy's got treasure, but didn't want in on any of that. He wasn't a young man when he did this. So hobbits have a weird lifespan, but he wasn't a young man when he went out and had his adventure. And then he came back and he took in his... Nephew. Nephew. He's not actually his nephew. It's like, there's a, it's like his great like nephew. His, yeah. yeah. But he took in his nephew... Because his nephew's parents passed, uh, boating accident, they drowned. Aww. Hobbits don't swim well, apparently. So he didn't. Yeah, he didn't really go have any other adventures. He, you get the feeling he's gone and visited Rivendell since Frodo has inherited 
Bilbo's sense of adventure. Yeah. Frodo has spent his entire childhood running all around the Shire and exploring its, you know, hills and dales and forests and rivers. Ooh, is yeah, that why he's... there's so many maps in Bilbo's house? Yes. Yeah, ma- I mean, Bilbo's obsessed with travel. He's obsessed with the greater, bigger all world. Himself. And he, yeah, oh, he's, he's cool. like described as an a amateur cartographer. And Frodo very much is taken on that sense of adventure from his uncle. And that's kind of what you see in some of the scenes that we watched today. You, Bilbo has a, has a minute aside with Frodo at the party where he says, out of all of my numerous relations, you are the only Baggins with real spirit. Mm. You'll be okay. And it's because we realize that he's planning on leaving. He's, Is he planning he's just on leaving disappear. him the funds? He leaves him that's everything. That's how I took He leaves that him to the house and everything. Bilbo just takes his adventurous pack and he leaves. And it's been like 60 years since the events of The Hobbit. Yes. Which is why when Gandalf does arrive in one of the scenes that, he, that we skipped to, to, for time, essentially, he, sit, he when the first time he sees Bilbo, he says, you haven't aged a day. And he doesn't say it like, a, oh, wow, bud, you look great, thinking in the back of the mind, dude, He's like, you're getting that's old. That's weird. No, it's and a... Six, six decades have passed and you look exactly the same. Yeah, you haven't aged a Something day. Something is strange. And 111 is mm. unnaturally long-lived yeah. for hobbits. Yeah, hobbits tend to kick the bucket around 90 So, so. hobbits yeah. are more like humans. They're yeah. not yeah. like... And he's he's not just 111. He's spry. Yes. Like, that guy ain't a day over 70. Hopping up around, giving speeches. Yeah. And you've perplexed your friend who is a wizard who, as we saw in the interaction with Frodo in the wagon, which I think only in the extended version you get Frodo expressing his concerns about Bilbo. So that's yeah, kind of, he we says see him get tipped Bilbo's off. being odd. Yeah. Yeah. You get a lot more of it, that interaction between Frodo and Gandalf, which I love mm. just because Ian McKellen, just I cannot imagine anyone else having played the part. No. Props to Sir Christopher Lee who wanted to play the part. Ian McKellen is just—he's a better star. Great. It's yeah, no, better, for sure. It's good casting, for sure. But you do—you get more of that interaction where where Frodo is actually concerned for his uncle. His uncle is not behaving mm. normal, even by Bilbo standards, which is not normal by anyone else's standards. <laughs> and so, yeah, that whole opening—that whole very first scene we watched—is is Frodo talking with Gandalf, catching up because they've known each other for a, for a long time, and also saying, "Hey, you're good friends with my uncle. You've known him for decades. Something is up." Mm. And that's why when Gandalf arrives and he sees Bilbo, because he's probably been gone from the Shire for 30 years, maybe less, but it's been a while. Bilbo hasn't aged. And that's what tips him off to like, okay, maybe there's something more going on. And when Bilbo vanishes at the end of his party. Unlike hobbits. That's not a hobbity type. No, turning completely (laughs) invisible is unusual. Mm. Extremely unusual. Um, In a scene we're going to watch later, another character says... I can remain unseen if I wish, but to vanish entirely, that is a rare gift. So another character says that to, Bil- to Frodo in a scene we haven't watched yet. Um, and you'll, we'll, we'll watch that scene. So like being able to completely disappear is next to unheard of. I think one of the coolest things about these opening scenes, though, um, and we're talking over your opinion, so I do want to hear. That's okay. Is, is you do get a sense of the, the culture of the hobbits. You get... The community you get the 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 the, the gorgeous landscape, um, and even Gandalf as he's arriving, he's he's humming to himself. He's happy. There's something about being in the Shire that is like the epitome of peaceful community. Everything's working well. Everybody's looking out for each other. Uh, it is what we kind of all wish our hometowns would be in a sense. And it, even just those two short scenes, I think 
Peter Jackson and, and the crew and the actors did such a brilliant job of bringing all that together in without even explicitly stating it. You know, they show it really well. I mean, Hobbiton is beautiful. It's so oh. beautiful they didn't tear it down. They didn't tear it down. They left it. <laughs> well, watching it, it kind of reminded me of uh, Renaissance fairs, and it felt like I finally started to understand in a different way why people have such an appreciation for things that mimic that era because to me it's always seemed like oh, life seems so much harder back in the day when you had to do so many things by hand compared to modern times but watching something like that scene from lord of the rings i started to see how much fun in life seems to be around in those spaces and how people must imagine it's that way does that resonate with anybody at this table i think it comes down to the idea of like work hard play hard mm. they work hard you know they're they're farming the land with iron cast iron plows and brewing is going to take months and there's no cell phones i can't just call somebody for a pizza but at the same time doing all of that community work doing all of that work it doesn't it's not one person it brings everybody together yeah it brings every takes everybody running a farm up until the industrial revolution was a family affair everybody pitched in (laughs) there's a somewhat silly example of that in a later scene where samwise gamgee who is a friend of Frodo and also their gardener. And is Bob from Stranger Things? Mm-hmm. And yes, yep. is played yes. by Sean Astin. Oh! Sean Astin. Uh, I like Bob. Shows I... up at Bag End. He shows up in the middle of the night after a night at the pub to do some late night gardening. Yeah. In sincerity? <laughs> in, like... in total sincerity. Uh... Is it though? I heard Wayne. I heard stealing carrots? No, no, he is Sam actually is he thief. is actually there to do his job. Because he was spending too long at the pub, and oh. he overhears things and gets in trouble for it. But mm. um, as but one does at an the adventure pub. because of it. Whisked away on adventure. Yeah. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. Tracks with what we see of Sam in the scenes that we watch because he's hesitant to uh, dance with Rosie, and then Frodo basically throws the matter. Yeah. And they spin away on the dance the very floor. beginning of the party scene. Sam and Frodo are Frodo's dancing. He's like the life of the party. He's Mister Popular. He's the son of the richest dude. Well. He's the heir of the richest dude in town. Everybody knows Frodo. They want to be good buddy buddies with Frodo, right? This yeah. is a long term, mm-hmm. or is it actually like genuine? No, they're, they're, it's, it's a genuine, genuine friendship. Everybody like no. Frodo's a likable guy. There's nothing wrong. I mean, like he's not untoward in some, and in any way, he's a good man. But he likes to have fun, right? So he's having fun, and Sam's sitting over there with his beard. And he's sucking it down, and he's looking wistfully towards a very pretty girl dancing over in this over elsewhere and Frodo shows up and says go ahead ask her for a dance and Sam says nah I think I'll just have another beer and that's when Frodo throws him into the mix and he ends up dancing with Rosie anyways and uh, that's very much like Samwise that's how he ends up on the adventure he's not they, you know, like by the end of the movies he's he nicknamed quote unquote Samwise the Brave but he's he doesn't start out that he doesn't way. start out that way he's very reluctant uh, but once he puts his head down and says he's going to do something it's like God, when God. they when they finally leave the Shire there's a scene where he stops, and Frodo's like, oh, why are you stopping? And he's like, if I, this is it. If I take one more step, this is the farthest from home I'll have ever been. Mm-hmm. Which is no, unusual. He doesn't, he doesn't want to go further. Right? The whole town is, re- is related because everybody grows up, stays there, gets married, has kids. That's There's like- also a great internet meme where you can watch the entire trilogy, uh, and it doubles in speed every step. Sam takes after that point. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yep. That's so fun. it's like the first 30 minutes, yep. and then you get to that scene, and then the whole trilogy is over in like three minutes after that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> they do a lot of walking, but that's okay. 
in reference to your asking about uh, asking about Sam outside the window, in the Lord of the Rings, characters with ulterior motives don't hide them particularly well. You can nah. always see there's something wrong with this character in this space right now, whether that is Saruman, whether that is Boromir, whether that is Denethor. Denethor. Yep. No trickery. Denethor. Yeah, you, you, well, it's you can see it very. It's easy. more of this idea that the the I world just feelings about Denethor. The world token Tolkien wrote still operates very much so on a people are very aware in their everyday interaction of a moral right and a moral wrong. And so then, when when characters are actively engaged in something that the rest of the world mm -hmm. would perceive as morally wrong, it stands out. Tolkien was a very staunch Catholic. Yes. Right. Yes. He and was. that definitely came through in his world yeah he was so the people who are evil it's noticeable it's mm. extremely noticeable and and the ones that are not maybe not even necessarily evil but are not actively working towards the good that everyone else seems to be working towards they come across as uncomfortable unusual mad denethor's in denethor's case which we'll get to oh in multiple many episodes later he is nuts he mm. has been driven to insanity. One of my little things that I knew about Lord of the Rings prior to this film was that Gandalf was like the queen from the Princess Diaries. That like her, he is not early nor is he late. He arrives precisely, precisely when, when he, he means, means to. to. <laughs> I love that. I and the queen that. says she is not late. Everyone else is simply early. I think that Queen Clarice Rinaldi and... Gandalf Greyhound would be best friends. Oh yeah, mm. that or they'd kill each other. <laughs> or they'd be <laughs> like the a other. very powerful power couple. Could be. Could and be. Speaking of second films that use John Reese Davies to brilliant effect. True. <laughs> given he's in the second one there, and then he's both Gimli and Treebeard. Yep. I have a question for you, Larissa. Uh oh. What do you think of Mary and Pippin? I think that they are a lot of fun, but I would not invite them to watch my house. And I would be hesitant to invite them even to a party, because what if I'd worked very hard on that tent? That said, dragon firework, two awesome words I hadn't thought to combine before. Very cool to see. Just wait for the other crazy shenanigans those two get up to. Uh, Any thoughts we haven't covered, Larissa, on your first viewing of the of the Shire? Ooh, I don't know if I have anything to add in addition, except that I want to go to there. Seems you like a nice can. place. Yeah, road trip to New Zealand. One day. <laughs> Storytelling breakdown goes to Hobbiton. Oh, that'd be fun. I'm actually curious as to what that would cost round trip. So <laughs> let's go ahead and the next segments of the Lord of the Rings, the scenes of power. Let's open with that number. We'll find it between episodes. And now for our closing segment, the update on where I'm at my personal level of interest in in pursuing a full watch of the Lord of the Rings trilogies, extended editions. I think that Hobbit Town, Hobbit Town, Hobbiton, Hobbiton, Hobbiton seems like a nice place to live. So that benefits it. Dragon firework. Cool. Are there more dragon fireworks? You'll have to watch and find out. Um, that sounds like a gentle no, that there's not more dragon fireworks. So maybe I'm sitting at 21% today, but it can shift day to day. That's where I am, dear listener. We are one-fifth of the way there. <laughs> 
I can backslide though, can so down. if there isn't a dragon firework at some point in the near down. future, I'm confident. I agree. I don't really think. It'll Especially now with the next section. Mm. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the Storytelling Breakdown blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram, and you can reach our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. Again, people, that is info at storytelling-breakdown.com, not underscore. You can also find our mini-series episodes for Campaign Diaries and RPG Decades at our website and where podcasts are found. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions Wayne Shout <laughs>